We are jumping into Revelation chapter 15 this morning. What we are delving into at this point is vision number five, or you may call it cycle number five, uh, of this book that really is laid out uh, in a manner that, it, that I think most people misunderstand. Most people believe that it's just uh, a gradual unfolding of everything in order that's going to take place in future times, uh, and etc. But I really believe there's very good reason for believing that it's actually an arrangement of seven different visions that basically cover the time between Christ's first ascension and his second ascension. Uh, and in, in different ones, you're going to see particular things emphasized uh, in very special ways. But this is vision number five, or cycle number five. Uh, just a little bit of preliminary preliminary uh, information, it's the last one of the, the seven particular judgments uh, that we've seen. Uh, it's, the, it's the final one that's arranged as seven somethings because we've had seven seals and we've had seven trumpets and now we have uh, seven bowls of wrath. Uh, one of the things I want you to notice here is this, is as we go from those, we started out with the seals, and, and generally speaking, when the, the judgments of the seals were pronounced, then a third of something was affected by it. But then when we got to the trumpets, it became, actually it was a quarter to begin with, and then it became a third with the trumpets. But now there's no sense of fractions. Now it's a sense of totality. What you're going to find is this. Is that there is an intensifying thrust that is going on here. In other words, the intensity of the judgments of God is not, not lessening. It's becoming stronger. In more particular, we've talked the last couple of weeks about how you can divide all of mankind into one of three categories, and that is those who never hear the gospel and those who hear the gospel and yet reject it. But then there's the third category of those who hear the gospel and they receive it. Both of these things our major thrust of the final. We're, we're getting kind of toward the end of this book. I don't know if you realize that or not. We're, we're like two-thirds of the way through the book of Revelation uh, at this point. But judgment is going to become more and more prominent in the next couple of chapters in particular. And I just want to remind us of this, that the gospel is good news for those who believe it. But it's not good news for those who don't. And there's no way of really studying the book of Revelation without giving lots of consideration to God's judgment. 
Because this is a very much thing that's very much emphasized in this book. We're going to see that here in these seven bowls of wrath. So read with me chapter 15 if you would. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou alone art worthy, for all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their waists or their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels Seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I saw another sign in heaven. Not the first time we've read that. Chapter 12, verse 1 starts out exactly with the same words. And I just want to remind us that, uh, that what has taken place here is that Jesus has not just told the Apostle John about, all the, about the things that were going to take place, but he has showed him visions. And what John has done is taken those visions and putting them into human language here in this particular book that you and I can read these things and have some understanding of it. Uh, but just think of all the things that we've studied already and, and, and remember this, that John has actually seen visions of these things. Some of these things are very horrifying and terrifying. But he's actually seen these things with his eyes. Seven more plagues. And again, described here as being the last because in them the wrath of God is not partial, not a little, not even a lot. Finished. Which can only refer to the final day of judgment, right? And here we are here only in chapter 15. We still have seven more to go. <laughs> uh, so again, this, and this is one of the reasons why we believe that this, is, this book is arranged in, in, in vis- groups of visions that basically cover the same things over and over again. Does the sense of the wrath of God scare you at all? 
When we think about wrath, we think about, we think about anger. We think about the anger that we have sometimes. We think about the anger that we see in other people sometimes. Let me ask you something. Would you describe our culture today as being a culture that is, at least to some degree, anger-driven? But we need to make a distinction between unrighteous wrath or unrighteous anger and what is truly righteous anger. I know we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks. And one of the problems that you and I have still have where we are is we still don't really understand the gravity of sin. We still don't understand how bad and how wicked and evil it is. The truth is this, is we all do this to some degree. We excuse our sin all the time. But it's still a very, I don't want to say a big part, it shouldn't be a huge part, it shouldn't be the predominant part of your life. But I know a lot of things about a lot of people in this room. One thing I know for certain is this, is there's no one in this room that's not yet a sinner. There's no one in this room that's not yet more of a sinner than they see themselves as being. Because we have a way of excusing away our sin. We can see it so clearly very often in the lives of other people. But when it comes to our own, very often, we are probably the most blind to it. Other people see it. But very often, we don't see ourselves as we truly are. But there will come a time when God's wrath will be completely spent in his judgment of sin. Not something for you and I to fear. Because we know that Jesus, that's what this whole table here is about today. That Jesus has come and he's lived this perfect life for us and he's, he died on the cross And and on the cross, the Father was pleased to bruise him, that he paid the penalty for our sins. So even though sin is still at least a part of our lives, that sin has been atoned for. He atoned for every sin that you have committed in the past and the ones that you'll commit today and everyone in the future. Now, does that mean that we have a license to sin? I mean, we, we should not have any concern about sin in our life at all because Jesus is atoned for it, so it doesn't really matter if I continue to do it or not do it or anything like that. I, you need to understand that that is anti-biblical to have a mentality like that. That we all need to be serious about putting sin to death in us. Okay? And Scripture encourages us to do that. He sees this vision in heaven. And in the vision he sees a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Now we've seen the sea of glass before, right? Chapter 4 talks about the sea of glass that... that, uh, is before the throne of God, that it was that that vision of the heavenly throne in chapter 4 and 5 that we studied in detail months ago now. But this sea of glass is mentioned there as being before the throne of God. If you think back all the way to Exodus, to to Mount Sinai, that there was a time when when Moses and, and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu 
and 70 elders of Israel, they went up on Mount Sinai and they saw God standing on this crystal that looked like it was made from sapphire. So what is this sea of glass? Well, it sounds like it is something. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's the place where God walks and no one else does. It's like this thing that ultimately separates him from, from everything else. I mean, we know there are these four living creatures that, that minister to God, these angelic beings that minister to God perpetually. There's no reference in Scripture of them ever falling or lighting or standing on the sea of glass or anyone else with an exception. Remember the song, Holy, Holy, Holy? Lord God Almighty? It talks about throwing down our golden crowns, where? Around the glassy sea. Let me just say this to you this morning. That is a very poor depiction of what Scripture says. The Greek that is here says very clearly that the saints, those, these are the ones that have Come off victorious. Those who have not bowed down to the beast, have not worshipped his image. Those who have been true to God, gathered now, not around the glassy sea, but on the glassy sea. Very clearly, that's what the Greek says. It doesn't say beside it, it doesn't say around it, it says on it. Standing on this glassy sea, which as we said, is the place where God himself trots. Some of the versions that we have, English versions we have, reflect, that they, they say beside, but let me tell you, it doesn't say beside in the Greek, it says on. And I think it's very theologically significant. Because it's, what it says is this. is that there's nothing at all to hinder you and I from approaching the very throne of God himself. There is no person other than Jesus that stands between us and him. We have no intermediaries besides him, no angels, no elders, no one else. That we are the children of God. We are of the family of God. That honor and glory in a sense has been granted to us in a way that it's not even given to angels. We are his chosen people, his elect.
Doesn't that paint a little bit different picture? That's how close we are to him. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he wants relations with us. That he has taken down absolutely every barrier that would separate us from him at all. Now let me ask you something. Do you feel loved? <laughs> you ought to. I mean, that is, that, that is part of the gospel message, guys and gals. And, it, and it's, it's, it's one of the things that makes the gospel almost unbelievable. That God wants a relationship, a close-knit, loving relationship with me that much. If that won't make you feel special, out of all creation, in heaven and on earth, I don't know what possibly could. That God has taken down every barrier, everything that would separate you from him. Totally. They hold harps of God. And when those harps, so obviously with harps, they're playing music. Music is a big Part of worship. See it all over scripture. It's what the Psalms have to do with. And lots of other parts of scripture. They were playing harps. And at the same time they're singing. And they're singing the song of Moses. Now you may go. Well I don't know what the song of Moses is. There are actually two songs of Moses. Written in scripture. One's in Exodus chapter 15 and the other's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Exodus 15 is the rejoicing of Israel after the demise of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. God's deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea. The one in 32 has to do, it was almost immediately before the death of Moses. And it's very lengthy. And they both, if you know, if you read them, they're, they're very deep. I mean, they're very praiseful you know, the whole intention of them is to give honor and glory to God because of his salvation and because of the things that he has done we've said this in many weeks uh, or a number of times over the last weeks and that is that we are to be a people of the word of God we are to be a people of prayer but we also are to be a people of song it's a long way to Uganda I mean, the only you can't get there directly from the states. You have to go through Europe or, you, you know, you can go to South America and go through Africa, get to Africa that way. But there's no direct way to get from here to Africa without going somewhere else first. At least it was that way years ago. You may be able to get direct flights now, but as far as I know, just a few years ago, you couldn't. It was going one way or going the other way. So it's a lengthy trip. You're talking about about 20 hours on an airplane by the time all is said and done. But I can tell you right now, 
It is well worth it just to worship with your Ugandan brothers and sisters one time. There are people, you know, that they, they impress me in a lot of ways. And one of them is that most of them have nothing. They don't have anything. If they have enough stuff to shove into a shoebox, they're wealthy. Their life is not much like our life at all. They struggle from day to day to have enough to eat. Some of them walk 20 miles to come to church. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever walked 20 miles to do anything? But some of them, every Sunday morning, they will walk as far as 20 miles to go to worship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the things that really stands out about them is whenever you're around a group of them, that it's not unusual for them out of the, out of the just clear blue just to break out in song. One of them will start singing, and the next thing you know, they're all joining in. And they have a way of harmonizing. Let's just, just we just can't do it. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's just, it's just, it's just really, it's great. I mean, it's really, it is just wonderful to listen to them sing. Because there is such joy that comes through in their singing that I'm not sure you could see it otherwise. And they expect you to sing too. See, Lord, I've tasted that. Walter's tasted that. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. People that for all practical purposes don't have a lot of things to be joyous about. But I think because of the circumstances of life, their salvation is a lot clearer to them. It's right in front of them. They see it all the time. So they're singing. Well, and I mentioned this also a few weeks ago. There's a, there's a contemporary song out there right now, and it says this. Whenever you realize what you have inside, it's only a matter of time until you sing. You can't help it. You want to do it. Let me ask you something. What do you do when you're driving down the road by yourself? I would imagine a lot of you sing. I do. Now I have a radio on my motorcycle. What do you think? I, have to probably get, I get a, some funny looks from people going down the road because I'm sitting there singing on my motorcycle when I'm driving to Ocala to teach class. We just have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to rejoice in. And it, but so often we let the trials and tribulations of life take it away from us. We can't do that. This world is starving for a lot of things. But one of those is just plain joy. And if people don't see it in us, where in the 
where in the world we would we expect them to find it or ever see it? Most of you are holding it in, or a lot of you are holding it in. You just want it's in there, but we repress it instead of letting it flow forth. There's all kinds of hymns, all kinds of hymns in the book. There's two songs of Moses like we talked about, praising God and giving him glory for all that he is and all that he's done. We see these kind of things all through the Psalms. We have words recorded here. Uh, It also says here that they're singing the song of the Lamb and could very well be uh, the words that we find in chapter 5, verse 9, where there's rejoicing. But I always think goes on in the reception of the Lamb of God into the throne room of God. You know, what exactly are the words? We've got some words recorded here, and this may be all of it. It may not be, be the totality of it. But can we echo these things? Great and marvelous are thy works. Can we say to that an Amen. And let me just say this, that whenever you think about the works of God, you should be yourself, should be the biggest surprise of all. That God has done for you what he's done for you. That God has loved you as he has loved you. In other words, you should think, look what he's done for me. How more marvelous can things be? The Lord God Almighty. You know, people want to have a God, but most people don't want an almighty God. What people want is a God, the God that most people want is a God that they can manipulate and can get him to do the things that they want him to do and they think better than he thinks, they know more than he knows. They, they, you know, they're very willing to give in advice and counsel about how this should go and how that should go and certain things. Like that. But just, I want to remind us this morning that God is God Almighty and he's, he's, he's not the God of circumstances. He's not the God that's, that's driven by circumstances. He's the God who creates circumstances. Every circumstance. Not just the ones that we consider to be good in our own eyes and in our own mind. He's almighty. And let me say to you, he's either almighty God or he's not God. You know, both of those things have to be true. If he's God, he's got to be almighty. If he's almighty, then he is God. There is no in-between. You can't water it down. Can we echo all these words that are recorded here? 
Verse 5, after these things I looked in the temple, the tabernacle, the testimony in heaven was open. Now, what do you know about the tabernacle? And then the temple later on, as far as being open. Was the tent door normally open to the tabernacle? Was the door of the holy, uh, holy place and the holy of holies open for anybody and everyone that ever wanted to go and take a peek? at the Ark of the Covenant and all those other things, was it open? No, it was closed. It was completely closed except for a certain class of people. The priests were allowed to go into the holy place, which they did daily, so they could trim the wicks of the lamps and they could replace the showbread when that needed to be done and, and all of that. But the, but the average person was never allowed into the tent of the tabernacle. And we know as far as the holy, the most holy place or the holy of holies that only the high priest went in there how many times a year? Once. To sprinkle the blood of the goat on the Ark of the Covenant. But now, and just remember this, that the tabernacle, the temple, is just a, is a replica. What, 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 what God did with Moses on Mount Sinai is he showed him the plans for building all the different articles and things. He showed him pictures of those things because those things actually exist in heaven. It's all a replica But notice here that the tent is open. That John is able to see into it. With this tabernacle that's in heaven. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. Clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. They're coming from the inner sanctuary. They're coming from the holy presence of Almighty God. He is sending them on a mission. They are not the author of these plagues that we're about to read about. He is. And he's just sending them forth to do his will, to do his bidding. The linen, clean and bright, is a picture of holiness. If you remember the letters to the seven churches, that in one particular one, it talks about the garments that he's going to give to the people. Just remember that God is holy. God is the center of holiness. That holiness is one of those 
attributes of God that to some measure he can communicate or give to people. Now you look at yourself right now and you would say, how would anybody think that I am holy? But there's a sense in which God has conveyed holiness to us already, but not to its fullest measure. To come into the whole presence of God, you must be holy. In other words, anything that is, is sinful, anything that has any tars of sin about it at all cannot come into his presence because in that situation, his presence is a consuming fire. That one of these days that we will be made holy in that sense. We're already holy. We're a people set apart. Don't get me wrong. But we're not completely, totally holy as far as sin goes. We know that. But one of these days we will be. We'll be done with it. It'll be gone forever. Sin and every effect of it. But do you understand that to come from where they're coming from, they have to be pure. They have to be holy. They couldn't be there if they weren't. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever uh, and ever. Remember the four living creatures. These are those angelic beings that are there, the throne of God, and they minister to him perpetually. They're there. Strange creatures. Wings and all that. The gift of these angels, these bowls, golden bowls, full of the wrath of God. Golden bowls were used in the tabernacle and the temple, obviously to contain things. But again, we need to understand that uh, what they're bringing forth is they're bringing forth that which God has given to them to bring forth. Not something they've manufactured. Not something they've produced. As they come forth, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. If you think about Isaiah's vision of God in the temple in in chapter 6 of his prophecy. Talks about how the temple was filled with smoke. If you think about the tabernacle when it was erected and the temple when it was finally finished, we're told that the glory of God filled the tabernacle and that it filled the temple. The vision of the presence of God and His glory. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished.
where exactly are we as far as history goes in this book of Revelation? I'm not sure there's anybody living today or has ever lived except for Jesus who knows the answer to that question, even though there are a lot of people who would be very willing to give you an answer. In other words, we know that Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he promised he was going to come again. Right? But he hasn't come yet. Could it be another 2,000 years before he comes? Yes. Could it be 2 million years before he comes? Yes. Could it be the next hour that he comes yes if you read the Olivet Discourse where Jesus talks about these things chapter 25 guys and gals is almost exclusively about God's judgment this is People don't like to talk about judgment, and there are some Christians, I think, that they just, they just you, know, you can't ever talk about God's judgment. What we've got to talk about only, exclusively, is the love of God, you know, in Christ and, and, and all of that. But let me tell you guys, if you don't think judgment is part of the picture, you haven't read your Bible. The Bible is chock full of judgment. The words of Jesus are chock full of judgment. The words of the apostles are chock full of judgment. And it's part of the picture. We don't talk about it because we think it makes God out to be bad. And that's because we're sinners and we misunderstand all of it. God will bring absolutely every single sin ever committed to judgment. Period. That day's coming. It is. And if you read all of that discourse in other places, you can't get away from judgment. And let me just say this. There's a difference between us judging and God judging. People very often are very willing to judge other people. I mean, how many times have you thought this week or saw something going on and you think to yourself, well, I could never do something like that. Look what so-and-so's doing or what so-and-so did and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let me just say this. I'm, I'm an older Christian now, I guess. I've been a Christian now for 35 years plus or so. And, uh but there's a sense in which I still feel like I'm a new Christian because I, live, I lived half of my adult life almost as an unbeliever. 
And there were certain things that kept me away from Christians, certain things that kept me away from church. You know, one of those things was I felt like people judged me. And I didn't think other people had any ground for judging me. Because it's not hard to find, you know, in the lives of people that there's sin in their life. It's true for everybody. Yesterday, Lori and I are doing a project at the house, and I lost my cool for just a second. <laughs> to the person I love the most in this world, and the person I would never, ever, for one minute, want to ever hurt. Yet I did. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of people out there in the world who believe that you believe that you are judge and jury. That you see as your purpose in life judging everything that other people do. They look upon the church as just being a church full of judgmental people who want to tell everybody else how wrong they are and how, what they're supposed to do. What the world needs more than anything else is to see us as we really are. Honest about ourselves. And until we get to that point, I don't know why we would ever think we're going to have much impact on it. I'm telling you guys, most of the people out there that are unchurched people, they see church people as just a bunch of people who judge everybody else. You shouldn't be doing that. You should not be doing this. That's not right. No, 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 no. Living by their mouth and not so much by their example. Things have got to change. Talking to someone this week, big church. They've had two services on Sunday morning for years now, and now they're back to one. Going to church is becoming less and less popular. Survey after survey after survey says that. Unfortunately, very often, people that go to church are the biggest stumbling block for the people who Needs us to be honest. Not to project to the world that we are these absolutely perfect people that never mess up and always do the right thing and always know the right thing to do. They need to see us in our humanity. When was the last time you had a conversation with an unbeliever? When was the last time you, with intention and purpose, did something with an unbeliever? You get the point?
That's what our mission is. To show the love of God to an unbelieving world. And if we're not in the world, we cannot do that. Is this important? It may be one of the most important things that you and I ever hear. Because this table has to do with a lot of things. But it has to do with being an example. There are people who believe this. They believe that Jesus come into the, came into the world for one reason and one reason only, and that is to be a role model for us. So how do you get to heaven? Will you be like Jesus? You do what Jesus would do. And let me tell you, should we do what Jesus did? Yes. Should we be like Jesus? Yes. But not because it earns us anything, because it doesn't. We be like Jesus because we're following his example that he gave us in this table. Sacrificing everything for the good of those who are unlovable. Remember, God. In this incarnation we just celebrated, God became man to save us, but also to be an example to us. I mean, being an example is part of it. It's just not the whole thing. So if we want to really celebrate the Lord's Supper and what's represented here, how do we do it? Well, we have communion once a month. But let me tell you, that does not replace doing it out there. Being an example. You've heard me say it a million times, and that is that the world's never going to be surprised that anything you do until you do something it doesn't expect you to do. Showing love to people that other people just don't see any reason for showing love to. That's a good place to start. I mean, how many times have you thought, gosh, someone said really would make a great Christian? What about the people you look upon and say, that person could never be a Christian? We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Praise team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of preparation. This is a time to prepare. This is a time to reflect on what Jesus has done and how that applies to me, where I'm at right now, and you too.